Hey, I'm Natasha Crane. And I'm Elisa Childers. Welcome to Unshaken Faith, where we equip you to live your Christian faith boldly in a chaotic culture. Today, Elisa and I want to respond to several questions that we've encountered lately in both our ministry and our personal lives. So instead of focusing on one subject like we usually do, each of us picked three questions that have come up recently for us. So since we're tackling six different topics today in total, we're not going to be doing in-depth answers. There would be so much more that we could talk about, but rather we're just doing some quick hits back and forth. And we hope that you will enjoy the variety and subjects that we're packing into this episode. Uh, To maximize our time to get through these six subjects, though, we're not going to be doing our tips of the week, but we do have a couple of important announcements before we dig in. That's right. We are just three days away from our Unshaken Conference in Brentwood, Tennessee. That's the Nashville area. It is not too late to get tickets. We would love to see as many of you as possible come out for this. As per usual, I'm going to be leading worship. I'm even going to be singing uh, a new song that I've just released on my website, alisachilders.com slash music. You can get my new music there. If you want to get tickets for the Unshaken event in Brentwood, you can go to unshakenconference.com. We would absolutely love love to see you come out. All right. Well, the first question that I'm going to hit is one that I actually get quite a bit. In fact, I would say that just about every time I go and do any kind of a speaking engagement, somebody asks me, how do I respond to someone in my life who is in deconstruction? And so I would say there's just two things we need to understand about this question. Number one, we need to understand what the definition of deconstruction is, because you might have a high school kid that comes home from church camp and says, hey, I'm in deconstruction. Don't panic. Don't freak out. Ask him what he means. What does deconstruction mean? Because a lot of younger people are using that word simply to mean that they're rethinking some of the faith traditions they've been given by their parents or their pastors. And they're wanting to make sure that what they believe lines up with reality. Or maybe they've just been going through some doubt and they're trying to find answers, but they're still focused on truth and they're wanting to line up what they believe with what is real. And so in that case, don't panic. Um, just help them with their questions. You don't have to be a scholar. Just learn, take, take some time, study up a little bit and continue those conversations and maybe encourage that person to not use the word deconstruction to uh, describe simply a time of doubt or something like that. And the reason for that is because how deconstruction is primarily expressed in our culture is a shift of authority from absolute truth and scripture to the authority of the self. And so theological views are assessed not by what the Bible says, but what by what resonates within someone's heart and soul. And that can be, we can be wrong about those things. And so if there's somebody in your life who's truly in deconstruction, they probably have already decided that what you believe is toxic and harmful. So their their, uh, impetus to want to disconnect from their churches and their families is really strong. So it's really okay to just back off a little bit and try to stay in their life and not try to fix their theology over coffee. This is going to be something that might take a lot of time. It didn't happen overnight might not be fixed overnight. So pray, live the beauty of the gospel out in front of them. And it's okay to back off a little bit and try to maintain that relationship. 
something that's really stood out to me at our Unshaken conferences, Elisa, is that when we get, we invite people to submit questions, there's a QR code and, and people can submit them for our Q&A session later in the day. And so we get to see dozens and dozens of questions at each of our conferences that people are struggling with. And we can only do a few of them, but we get so many questions about this topic, so yeah. many questions about deconstruction. And it's just, it's striking how prevalent this is. So this is such a relevant question that you're answering today. And it's also striking the age range that we're talking about. I mean, you know, I always think of it in terms of what do you do when your teen is deconstructing? But I think more often the people at our conferences who are submitting questions about it actually are talking about their adult children. And yeah. so it seems like this is something that's just happening across across all ages, both genders, everything. Yeah, well, the first true. question that I'm going to respond to is, was God evil for asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? And this came up in, in our home recently because my twins, who are freshmen at a Christian high school, were in a history and theology discussion about Genesis 22 in their class, where God tells Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, and go up on a mountain to offer him as a burnt offering. And my, my kids said that most of the class thought and concluded that God was immoral in doing this. Wow. And it's a common point that skeptics raise. So I wanted to just give a quick response and hear a couple of points to know. First of all, Isaac was never actually sacrificed. So this is a really important point that they said didn't even come up in the class. Everyone was just talking about how immoral uh, God was in doing this. But obviously, God knew if he is omniscient and he knows everything, God knew that when he made the initial request that he was planning to provide a ram as a substitute. So he knew that there would never be a sacrifice to take place. So if a human sacrifice was never God's intent, this story in no way shows that God approves of such actions. In fact, God explicitly condemns human sacrifice elsewhere. For example, you can look at Deuteronomy 12.31. Second, God had a very, very specific purpose with this event, and that was to test Abraham's faith as one of the most important people in history. So God had promised Abraham that he would become the ancestral father to the Israelites and that the whole world would be blessed through the line of his son, Isaac, and Jesus, the Messiah, would eventually descend from him. But now God was asking Abraham to kill Isaac. So this is the big question. How would God be able to keep this promise of the descendants blessing the world through Isaac if Abraham killed the son through whom all of this was going to happen? That's the big question. Abraham would not have known how all of that was going to work out, but he trusted in God's promises anyway. And when God provided a substitute through a ram, it actually foreshadowed the death of Jesus on our behalf 2,000 years later, which is really kind of mind-blowing if you think about it. I, I never heard that connection until I was an adult, and I was like, wow, that's really amazing how this pointed forward in that way. Uh, but the right. bottom line is that Abraham trusted. He didn't know how all this was going to work out, but he trusted in God's promise. He didn't know if God would provide a substitute. He didn't know if he would kill his own son and God would raise him from the dead. Hebrews 11 actually speaks to that as maybe what he was thinking that even uh, in that situation, God would raise him from the dead. So we don't know exactly yeah. what Abraham was thinking, but he trusted in God's promises. Yeah. And this is a claim that's brought up by progressive Christians quite often and probably most famously by the late Rachel Held Evans several years ago. And our friend Jean E. Jones, whose uh, husband Clay Jones is a Biola professor, she actually wrote a five-part answer to Rachel Held Evans several years ago. It's a wonderful resource. If anyone wants more information on that specific question, you can go to Jean, J-E-A-N, 
E, the letter E, and jones.net. And the article starts with, uh, was Abraham wrong? Answering Rachel Held Evans. And there's like five parts. So you can start with part one if you want to go even deeper into that question. But um, that, that was a good kind of quick hit there, Natasha. So my next question is, and I think this is an important one, is how do I figure out if my doubt is emotional or intellectual? Because I think a lot of people, when they start to experience doubts, they just assume it's intellectual. They think, oh, well, I just am maybe not persuaded anymore by the evidence. Maybe there's not enough evidence to prove that the Bible is reliable or that God even exists at all or that Christianity is true or the resurrection happened. But often I have found that when you start asking a lot more questions and hear the way people are phrasing their questions, if there's a moral undertone to the question, the doubt is probably not intellectual, but it's actually probably emotional. And so, for example, somebody might uh, just take, for example, the problem of evil, what we refer to as the problem of evil and suffering in apologetics, which is posed by a lot of atheists and skeptics that says, if God is all loving and all powerful, why doesn't he stop evil and suffering? Either he's not powerful enough or he's not all loving, something more is going on. But what I pointed out to someone even just this week is that that question actually only works. You can only ask that question if Christianity is true. Because if Christianity is not true, if we don't have a higher moral authority or a moral law giver, then we can't call anything evil. We can't accuse anyone anywhere of doing something objectively evil because good and evil would just be a matter of opinion. And so to even accuse God of doing something or allowing something evil, that question can only be asked if the Christian worldview is true. And when there are these kind of moral questions, uh, for example, if if somebody's wondering maybe why God put the tree in the garden, uh, you know, in the garden of Eden, why did he do that? Was he just dangling a carrot so that, you know, just to just play with people in some kind of a way? But notice how there's already assumptions being made about God's motivations and at that point, that's kind of an emotional problem where you're maybe struggling with the goodness of God or you're struggling with why he would do certain things, but not with the evidence as to whether or not he actually exists or if Christianity is true. And so I think a good way to diagnose that even in ourselves is how are we feeling when we're asking these questions? Um, are we wanting truth? Are we wanting to line up what we believe with reality, whether we like it or not, or whether it feels right to us or not? Or are we really more struggling with something that's more in the emotional realm that has to do with good and evil and something along those lines? Yeah, that is such an important distinction. And it, so it, you kept saying why, you know, those why questions, that's kind mm -hmm. of the big indicator, right? If the, your questions tend to always start with why would God do X, Y, and Z, that tells you that you're wondering about motives and how you, you know, put that together. How do you justify? We don't always have answers to the why because we don't have the mind of God. And those are totally different questions than, you know, how do we know that the New Testament is reliable, for example, or what yeah. historical evidence is there that totally different than the why would God do this or that? And there, yeah. people can have lots of answers for those. I mean, lots of people will write on those things like Abraham and Isaac. And and like you're saying, people have gone really in depth in those. We don't necessarily always know exactly why, but that doesn't mean that there's not a coherent, rational explanation that people can still give from a theological right. standpoint. Well, my next question kind of follows from the one that I answered before about the question of sacrifice in the Bible that my kids' class was discussing. And because that was a foreshadowing of Jesus' sacrifice, that naturally led to a discussion about whether or not God is evil for sacrificing Jesus for our sins. So this often comes up and for skeptics. And, you know, a lot of times it's been called the, you know, it's like a cosmic um 
cosmic child, child abuse. abuse. Yes, cosmic yeah. child abuse. Thank you. That's kind of the claim that if God killed Jesus, this innocent victim, that that is in some sense a cosmic child abuse and it's just repulsive to people. So as a quick response to that, there's a lot that could be said about this one. In my book, Talking With Your Kids About Jesus, I have a chapter called Did Jesus Die Willingly? That addresses this. And in that chapter, I share three Ps that you can use to remember why God is in no way evil for sacrificing Jesus. And there's a lot more detail there, but really briefly, I just want to highlight the three points, the three Ps. So the first P is that it was planned. Jesus knew that he would suffer and die. He predicted his violent death and resurrection multiple times by saying that he, quote unquote, must suffer and die. So this shows that Jesus didn't just happen to end up in the wrong hands and be in the wrong place at the wrong time. He knew that his death was part of the plan. The second P is that it was purposeful. Jesus knew why he would suffer and die. So he said in Mark 10, 45, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus's own stated purpose was to release us from sin by paying our debt. And that leads to the third P, that it was personal. Jesus chose for himself to die. He says he laid down his own life on his own accord. So God did not sacrifice a random human being who happened to be a willing victim. And here's where our understanding of the Trinity is so important. Jesus is fully God. So he sacrificed his own life for payment for sin. This is kind of the, the linchpin of this conversation and this discussion. And, you know, my, my kids said this didn't really even come up in the class, that it was, you know, a matter of understanding the Trinity in this way. It's not that God just took this random person who was innocent. God sacrificed himself because Jesus mm -hmm. is fully a person of the Trinity. That's right. And, and in our natural minds, this is hard to make sense of this. In fact, it reminds me of when Jesus predicted his death and resurrection to his follow his disciples and Peter opposed him. Peter was like, no, no, we don't want that to go on. And that's when Jesus famously responded to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for your mind. I, I can't think of the verse exactly. The, the paraphrase is you're setting your mind on things of, of man, not on things of God, right. because in, in the divine mind, there's a very strong, important reason for this that doesn't necessarily make sense to our natural minds. So my final question today is how do I decide to trust in Jesus when there are just so many different opinions about the evidence for Christianity or the evidence against it or evidence for other worldviews and this and that? Like, how do I decide to say, okay, I plant my flag here and I'm going to trust in Jesus. And I think it's really important to approach this question from a proper understanding of what the Bible talks about when it talks about faith. I think a lot of Christians define faith, sadly, like atheists do. Richard Dawkins famously uh, defined faith as believing in something even when there's no evidence for it, or even in spite of there being evidence against it. And that's how the atheists define faith, but that's not how the Bible talks about faith. In fact, the word that faith is translated into English from is a word that means trust, and it's like an active trust. And so it's not just checking intellectual boxes like, okay, I've examined all this evidence. I have checked the boxes so that these things are true. So therefore, uh, you know, I, I'm deciding and picking myself up by my bootstraps and deciding. In fact, the Bible even says that demons believe they believe the right the theological points. They've checked those intellectual boxes, but they're not saved because they can't put that active trust in Jesus. So active trust is like when you go fly somewhere on an airplane, it's, it's one thing to check the intellectual boxes of, yes, I believe that this airplane has been constructed properly, that the engineers did their jobs, that the pilots are trained, that the mechanics have maintained it properly. 
but I haven't put active trust in that belief until I put my body on the plane. So Christianity is placing saving faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I think that we really have to understand that because you can even believe all the right things, but not have placed saving faith in Jesus. So it's like taking a step based on good evidence. Of course, we are evidentialists. We like that there is evidence that supports that belief and it's not a blind leap. But the evidence leads you to take that step of faith where you're putting active trust in Jesus. And um, I think that's just something everyone has to search their own heart to answer that question. How do I decide to trust in Jesus? Well, you have to put your body on the plane and you really have to submit to him as Lord of, of your life. And I think that is probably what a lot of people are actually resisting is not being in control and in charge of their own life. Yeah, that's a, that's really good. And I think, too, that people have an unrealistic standard sometimes of how much evidence they're going to have. They want to have, like, mm-hmm. every question on earth answered. They're looking for right. a complete certainty. But something I've always shared with my kids is that you're going to have, or you should if you're intellectually honest, you're going to have questions no matter what worldview you hold to. So if yeah. you're an atheist who believes that there's nothing else out there, there's nothing beyond the natural world, if you're being honest, you should acknowledge that there are still questions that you have that that worldview does not answer. We are always going to have questions. There is not 100% certainty when you look at anything from that evidential perspective. So we have to be reasonable, I think, in what we're expecting. Look at the evidence, follow the evidence, and based on the weight of the evidence, then make that decision to trust. And that's what Mm -hmm. a biblical faith would be. Well, my final question today is, does everyone worship the same God? And this one came up for me because of a comment thread on a Facebook post where I had made a bunch of recommendations for resources to just learn about the history of the Israel-Hamas conflict. And for some reason, I don't really know why, because Facebook has become so difficult with the algorithms and everything, it kind of went a little bit viral. I mean, this one post was shown to like 150,000 people in just a a few hours. And so it started bringing a lot of people to the comment thread who don't normally follow me and wouldn't normally see anything. So I got some interesting comments. And one Muslim response, we should all grow up and behave the way that God directs us to with humility, self-restraint, self-sacrifice, offering the olive branch like mature adults. And that's the end of his quote. And so this was really interesting because I didn't really say anything either way in the post. I just gave these resources uh, to understanding the history of Israel. But clearly he was saying, hey, everyone on both sides just needs to do what God directs us to do. So my response mm-hmm. to him very briefly stated was this. I said, you know, that sounds good, but the problem is defining which is the true God and the true revelation of God. Is it the God of the Bible or is it the God of the Quran? Because what God directs us to do is presented very differently in these two books. So the jihadists are following the direction of the Quran, which is in no way a direction of self-restraint. So my basic point here was just to show that while Muslims and Christians and others may agree that there's only one God, we have such vastly different conceptions of who God is that it doesn't make sense for all of us to appeal to a common understanding that doesn't actually exist. So for example, Islam uh, denies the deity of Jesus while Christianity affirms the deity of Jesus. This is very different in terms of our understanding of who God is. Mormonism teaches the existence of many gods while Christianity teaches the existence of one God in three persons. Jainism teaches that the universe is eternal and that there's no creator God while Christianity teaches that the universe is finite and required a creator God to bring it into existence. Those are just a few examples, but when we look at the teachings of different religions, they make 
vastly different claims about who God is. So when someone like the Muslim man on this comment thread appeals to, you know, hey, let's all do the right thing and do what God directs us to do, the question we have to ask is, how do we know the right thing and what God directs us to do? Because for Muslims, that answer is going to be found in the Quran. And for Christians, it's going to be found in the Bible. But those answers are very contradictory. We can't just appeal to doing the so-called right thing according to God, however that's defined, without knowing who he is that we're talking about. Yeah, that's really good because even though two different religions can have gods that might even share the same name and some of the same backstory, it doesn't mean they're the same person. And of course, God doesn't contradict himself. He's not confused. He doesn't have a split personality. So it's got to be one or the other. And I think that's where uh, a good hard look at evidence comes in and, and looking at what these religious books are actually teaching. So that was a great response there, Natasha. So thank you everyone for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe to the Natasha Crane podcast and the Elisa Childers podcast for long-form episodes. We go deeper into topics like these, but for now, let's remember that as Christians, we have a firm foundation to stand on that, as Psalm 62 puts it, is our rock and our salvation, our fortress, where we will never be shaken. 